you would turn in the Word of God to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to continue our study in 1 Peter. Uh, we find ourselves in verse 8 through verse 18 this morning. And as you turn there, let me just say thank you to so many folks who have uh, been up here all week long to all hours of the night making sure that we could uh, worship here today. Uh, I was talking to the guys, the uh, folks who were finishing up the building, finishing up their work, the expansion, and I kept saying over and over, we're low maintenance. Like we're, you know, there, there are some things that we still need to tidy up. We still need to finish the stage. Some of you are wondering, is this the look we're going for? Like, is this some sort of new cool look? Uh, maybe it, 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 it could be, I guess, but we're, we're going to finish this stage off. And there's a lot of other things that need to to be done around here, and I keep telling folks in our church and, and other folks, we're, we're low maintenance. We're, we're, we're going to make this work, and we've met in uh, worse locations, and uh, we're going to be okay. And I, I say that not as an insult. Um, I say that because I understand uh, this church is made up of folks who just love Jesus. That, that's all. The, they just love Jesus, and they want other people to know about Jesus. Uh, and I think at the core of who we are, that's why uh, God is, is blessing us so much uh, here. It's because it's about Jesus. It's not about us. Uh, and I want to uh, challenge you and encourage you uh, to make sure that's always the case. That it's always about Jesus. If it's about Jesus, you'll be willing to be up here till 1 a.m. in the morning wiring up sound and finishing things off up here. Uh, if it's about Jesus, you're not gonna you're not gonna argue about uh, how to how to utilize space and parking and what the next step's gonna be. We're just gonna figure it out for the sake of the gospel. If it's about Jesus, you're you're not gonna have your own agenda when it comes to our money, when it comes to our finances. You're gonna give so other people can know about Jesus wherever that may be here and around the world. And so I want to challenge you to make sure as we move forward as a church, it's always about Jesus. And one of the ways that we make sure it's always about Jesus is week after week we come before the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus that have been given to us in the Bible. The words of Jesus that have been given to us in Holy Scripture. And that's why week after week we come together and we stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. Stand as we read God's word together from 1 Peter chapter 3 beginning in verse 8. Hear the words of Jesus. Make sure as you hear the words of Jesus today, you're intent on making your life about Jesus. Finally... All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or, or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless for to you this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceit and let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous 
and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, they, they see your good behavior in Christ and they may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Oh God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you today that you have gathered us here to hear from you in your word, that you have gathered us here to, to transform us according to your word. And God, I pray that our hearts would be surrendered to your word. God, we subtly believe that we are the center of all things. And God, I pray today your word would be like a hammer and it would crush that thought. And we would regard Jesus as holy Lord and master of all things. And we would submit to him in hope and reverence. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As my kids have gotten older... Uh, the consequences for stupidity in my home have changed over the years. Uh, and one of the uh, forms of, we'll say, correction now in my home is what we call running the hill. I have a very steep hill behind my house, and uh, when one of my kids, they're all young adults now, and, and they're all pretty athletic, so they're in shape. Uh, so this isn't a form of child abuse, I, I don't think. Uh, but, but when they do something stupid, I'll put it that way, uh, they have to run the hill. Uh, and so this is where correction and conditioning sort of meet, and it's a good thing for them in both senses. And a few months ago, one of my sons was having to run the hill. He had done something uh, very foolish, and, and he was being corrected for that, and he was running the hill. Uh, and I found myself, uh, as he was running the hill, at the top of the hill, uh, coaching him, we'll say. Uh, and as he would come to the top of the hill, I would coach him up. And, and as, as this uh, continued, I found myself in what my family would probably describe to you as coach slash pastor, preacher, dad. All those things came together at the top of the hill when he would get to the top of the hill. So that means he was being coached very intensely. By, and he was getting a sermon every time he got to the top of the hill uh, with fatherly, uh, you know, discipline that was going on. And so as that was going on, I looked across the street and I saw my neighbor who was very interested in what was happening to my son. And he was staring out the window. I could see him. He would come to his front door every time this son would come to the top of the hill and, and look out. And at one point, he even came out to his car and acted like he was getting something out of the car. And <laughs> was watching. And I, I thought, this isn't unusual. Like, he's seen this before. 
And he's kind of weird too, so I don't know what he's weirded out by. Like he's seen this before. And, and I, I began to re rehearse what was going on and I even began to feel a little guilty. Like, what was I saying? What was I, what was I doing? And, and I realized as I stood at the top of the hill because I was helping another son uh, in the garage on his baseball swing, we were hitting off the tee, that every time this son would come to the top of the hill, I would march outside with the baseball bat and coach him. And I realized that my neighbor, all he saw was me coming out of the garage with a baseball bat, yelling and screaming. I wasn't yelling and screaming. I was trying not to say that. And so he thought I was crazy. And so after I thought about it a while, I said, I'm going to go over and talk to him. And, you know, I probably won't convince him I'm not crazy, but uh, just see what he was really thinking. And he goes, no, I was just fascinated by what was going on. He said, that was so fascinating. And he said, if someone had done that for me when I was his age, I would be married by now. <laughs> now, <laughs> he said that. Those were his words, not mine. I'm not making it up. And, and I realized, okay, there, there was nothing to, to, to worry about. Same craziness that happens day after day in our neighborhood. But it did make me wonder if we ever stop and think about the way the world sees us and the way that we rage, even as Christians. We live in an outrage culture. Every day there's something else to be outraged about. There's a new controversy. There's a new issue. There's a new headline. There's a new hashtag that we are supposed to be angry about, that we have to pick a side and get outraged about. It's new every day. And if you ever stop to think about the way the world watches us rage. And, and are we any different than anyone else that's got their, their jaws clenched in anger? Their, their nostrils flared in frustration. Their, their shoulders tensed up. That, that seems to be the way we're supposed to live in our culture. Always angry about something. And have you ever stopped to think about the way the world around you watches you? Even as Christians, we are to fight for what is right. But how do we do it? And what does the world see? Here in chapter 3, Peter is talking to the church about how they are to fight in the world. They're in a culture that hates Christianity. They hate Christians. They're being burned on street corners for street lamps. They hate Christians. There are rumors and slanders everywhere about what Christianity is. Everyone is opposed to Christianity. And he tells them, you are to fight. You are to give a defense. But the way in which you do that is to lend credibility to the kingdom, not to repel others from the kingdom. And he says here, you're going to need one another to do this. Notice verse 8. He says, finally, all of you, y'all, all of y'all, everyone in the church, he's called everyone to submit to authority, ultimately the authority of Christ. 
And then he says, as you do that in the church, you are to have unity of mind. This word, it's where we get the word harmony from. We're to all think the same. And he says, in the church, you are all to think Jesus. You're to think gospel. And that gospel is to unite you together, thinking the same. He says, you're to have sympathy. You are all literally, he says here, to feel the same. You're to have the same joy, the same pain. Have you ever been in those situations where you have a family member who, who is in agony, pain, and, and you, you feel that for them? You, you wish you could take that pain away from them and even endure it yourself. He says, in the church, you're to have that for one another. He says, you're to have brotherly love. You're to love one another as family in the church. You're to have a tender heart. It, it, here, this word is, it's an intense word. And, and it refers to feeling that comes from even our bowels is what it means in the Greek. It's, it's this intense gut level feeling for one another that you're to have in the context of the church, a tender heart. He says a humble mind. You're to think less of yourself and you're to consider more others more important than yourself. And he just packs all these words into verse 8 to describe this intense love that the church is to have for one another. If you're going to fight in the right way in the culture, you're going to have to have a church that loves you. If you're going to endure suffering in the world, you're going to have to have this intense, familial, gut-level love that only comes in the context of the body of Christ. See, you live in a world that distracts you from Jesus. All week long, you're thinking about your schedule, your money, your priorities, everything that goes into your life, and you have to have a church family that you gather with once a week that reminds you it's not about you. We're all thinking the same and we're united around the thought that this is all about Jesus. You have to have a family that reminds you of that, that's thinking Jesus and calling you to think Jesus. You've got to have a fa church family that feels for you. That, that's one of the best ways to describe what he's talking about here is the feelings, the gut level feelings that we have for one another. We live in a world where Everyone, every day, seems to be slipping further and further away into depression and loneliness. We've never been more connected through digital means, and yet we're all lonely. And he says, in this culture, in this world, you've got to have folks that when you're in pain, they feel it. When you're headed to cancer, to chemo, they're going to be right there by you to vomit with you. That's what he's describing here. The sort of oneness that goes in the context of the church. That you're going you're gonna to fight together and you're going to fill together. That, that you're going to have a church family that when your adult children rebel against the gospel, they're going to feel that in their gut. And they're going to the, pray for your children as if they were their own. That's the sort of gut level emotional response you're to have for one another in the context of the church. In a world where everything seems to just tell us it is about us, you're to gather together with folks who are humble. Not just that they're quiet, that's not what that word means. But they think of others more important than themselves. And when you're around folks 
who are, those are the most happiest folks, by the way. Folks who know it's not about them and they think more about others than themselves. When you're in a culture like that, you know how freeing it is? You know what it does for you? It reminds you this is about Jesus. This isn't about me. And you need that family in your life. He says, as exiles in a world that is raging against you, you're going to need a family that loves you, that is so tied together by the Spirit that they think and they feel and they respond as one. Notice verse 9. He calls us to fight with the church, and then he calls us to fight like Jesus. Notice verse 9. He says, do not repay evil for evil. This, this word means uh, wicked acts or vengeance, vengeance uh, for vengeance. You don't take justice into your own hands. Reviling for reviling. This is mockery or humiliation. You, you don't respond when you are mocked with mockery. He says, but on the contrary, bless. It means to speak kindly. It means to praise. It's, for, it's from where the word from what we get, the word eulogy, where we stand up at someone's funeral and we speak kind of them. Do you see how countercultural that is? When somebody mocks you, you turn to them and you eulogize them. Isn't that crazy? He says you bless them. You literally bless your enemies. And this is exactly what Jesus called us to do. He says, when you are mocked and reviled, bless those who curse you. Bless those who persecute you. And notice he says, for this is what to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And, and he, he describes our state before the world here. And he says, when you have the freedom and power and you can find joy in looking at your enemies and speaking kindly to them as they revile you and mock you and humiliate you, he says, that's what you're called to. And when you do that, you prove you're in the kingdom because it's only kingdom power that can do that. And it's only kingdom power by the Spirit that causes us to fight in that way Fight like Jesus did. And then he quotes Psalm 34 here in verse 10. He says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceit. And he's, he's describing if you want a blessing from God, if you want to uh, have a good life, good days, just in a general sense, then control your tongue. And don't lash back at your enemies. No, he says, verse 11, let him turn away from evil. The, the word here is vengeance and do good. Uh, you respond to your enemies with goodness. You pursue, notice he says, their peace. You pursue peace with your enemies. And he says, verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And he says, if you want the blessing of the Lord, bless your enemies. If you want the blessing of the Lord, control your tongue. If you want to know what it means to be righteous, the word righteous here means you are inwardly right, and so you do the right thing. He said, you want to know what that's like? You bless those who curse you. You control your tongue, even when you are mocked. Now, when we hear that, that that just grates against everything that we are. Some of us are even angry at me right now for saying it. This is the Word of God, okay? Go home and read it. Get mad at God, not me. God said this, bless your enemies. 
Don't respond with mockery when you are mocked. Control your tongue. We read that and we go, I, I ain't doing it. We read that and we go, yeah, but, 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 but you don't know the people I work with. But you don't know my enemies. You, 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 I can't do that. You see, our, our natural tendency, we do this. Instead of blessing our enemies, we villainize our enemies. We're the victim, whether it's in politics or even the sports world. The, the, the team that we cheer for, somehow they are this morally upstanding program that does everything right and everything, every dot is in place and every T is crossed just right. But if they wear black and red, then they are the most vile humans. From, they are spawns of Satan. And some of you are ready to scream, Amen! And I didn't even tell you what team I was talking about. But that's the way we do everything. If it's my side, we're the good guys. Oh, they're the villains. We just can't do that. Everything within us is to fight for our own agenda. Our own agenda. Our own tribe. That's not the way Jesus fought. And that's why here in verse 34, he's not describing you. Psalm 34 is not about you or what you can do. Psalm 34 is about Jesus. Jesus is the one who controlled his tongue when he was mocked. King of kings, you're a pathetic man on a cross. And what did he do? The text says he kept his mouth shut like a lamb led to slaughter. As the nails from his enemies were, were being driven through his wrist, you know what he did? Forgive them for they know not what they do. How do you do that? How do you do that as your enemies are crucifying you and stapling you to a cross? And you say, forgive them as you look into their eyes of rage. You respond with meekness. He's describing Jesus here. And if we're honest, we say, we can't do this. He's describing one who, who the favor of God rested upon. And, and, and one whom God heard his prayer and raised him from the dead three days later. And his face shines upon him. Notice the way the blessing is described there. The face and favor of God looks upon you with delight. The Father's face looks upon Jesus with delight because He blessed those who cursed Him. Oh, the only way you can bless your enemies is in Jesus. That's where it starts. We, we would never fulfill Psalm 34, but Jesus has. And His point here, listen to this, Jesus has proven to us very vividly, as we think about, I just can't bless my enemies. I just can't love my enemies. Well, Peter says this, Jesus has proven very clearly that the favor of God rests upon those who serve their enemies. The face of God shines upon the one who serves his enemies. And yet, he turns away from the wicked, the one who curses his enemies. And so, here's the question. What are you afraid of? If Jesus blessed his enemies, if Jesus did not respond with mockery when he was mocked and reviled, what are you scared of? Who do you think you are? And notice verse 13. Now, 
Who is there to harm you? What are you scared of? If you are zealous to do what is good like Jesus, what are you scared of? Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Remember Jesus. He was raised from the dead three days later after suffering for doing what is right. The most unjust act in human history is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He didn't deserve to die. He suffered in that way for righteousness sake. He was so zealous for goodness that he suffered in that way. And the blessing of God rested upon him. And he says, so if you do what is right, if you align yourself with what is right, what are you scared of? You will be blessed. Have no fear of them for, for, and do not be troubled by them. Do not be intimidated by your enemies. Jesus loved his enemies. And the way you fight against your enemies is the same way Jesus did. You're not scared. You're not frustrated. You're not angry. You're not outraged. You're not disgusted. No, you're like Jesus. And by the power of the kingdom, you can look them in their eyes and bless them. Because that's what Jesus did. So what do you have to fear? Jesus is perfect and righteous, and he, that's what he did. Don't you want to be like Jesus? What's the worst thing that could happen to you? What is the worst thing that could happen to you through serving your enemies? Think about those people you consider your enemies. What's the worst thing they could do to you? Well, Jesus said they could kill you. You didn't expect I was going to say that, did you? Oh, they can kill you. Probably not going to happen to many of us here. It does happen around the world. But Jesus would say, don't fear those who can only destroy your flesh. Fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Fear God. But the worst thing they could do to you is kill you. They can't do anything to your eternity. But you know why we rage? It's because we believe our enemies have some sort of power over us. We believe that they can take something from us. And Peter's saying, that's not true. You have the eternal kingdom of God. And you should fight like you have the eternal kingdom of God. You are free and you have the power to bless those who curse you. That's the power of the kingdom. And you have it. You have that power. You know why you won't forgive your enemies? Think about the people in your life who you need to forgive right now. You know why you won't do it? Because you think in forgiving them, you're admitting that they're right and you're wrong. It's not necessarily true. You're scared to lose something. You're scared to lose something in just being kind and forgiving others, being gracious to others, giving others the benefit of the doubt. You feel like you're losing something. You know why you can't just disagree with others and be friends? Because you feel like if you're friends with someone on the other side from another tribe, that you're admitting that they're right. And you know what that is? That's, you're, you think you're losing. And, and Jesus would say, what do you have to lose? Peter says here, fight like Jesus. You're, you're scared to be weak? Oh, Jesus was crucified. Jesus was mocked and humiliated on a cross. What are you scared of? Jesus was treated like an abused dog by his enemies. He was dragged through the streets, a crown of thorns pressed in his head, humiliated as a fake frog king. Threw a purple robe on him. 
laughed at him. That's what his enemies did to him. What do you have to lose? Jesus was on a cross, and you know what that means? He was seen as cursed. On the cross, people looked at Jesus as a sinner, as one cursed by God. And we know that wasn't true. We know that wasn't, that wasn't what was going on. But he was willing to endure that at the hands of his enemies for you. And so Peter says, what do you have to lose? What do you have to lose in blessing your enemies? You've already been crucified. You've already been mocked. And guess what? You, after, after being dead for three days, have already been raised up. What do you have to fear? Bless those who curse you. Love your enemies. Fight the way Jesus fought. Maybe it's not that we're not scared of our enemies. Maybe it's that we're scared of Jesus. Maybe the way Jesus does things scares us to death. Notice verse 15. So in our hearts, we honor Christ as Lord and holy, always being prepared to make a defense. Now, he says here, in your hearts. The word heart, it means all of you. Your emotions, your will, the way that you think, your whole being. You, you take your heart here and he says, you surrender it to Jesus as Lord. In everything, he says, you make Jesus holy. Jesus is set apart. He's not like anything else you serve. He's not like anyone else you serve. Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords, and you surrender everything before Him as holy. He says as Lord. The word Lord here means master. You are His servant. He is your master, your whole being. And then He says always be prepared to make a defense. The word means to make a stand, to explain. What am I standing for? Jesus is Lord. And I'm ready to make a defense and give a reason, a verbal explanation, he says, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, he's not saying, live like a Christian, and as you live like a Christian, someone might ask, are you a Christian? I would like to be a Christian. How often does that happen to you? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you live like Jesus, and you surrender to him as master... You're going to have, notice, hope. That's what's going to set you apart. Is this confident expectation that Jesus is sovereign Lord and He's going to take care of everything. And people, are, people are at times may ask, why do you have a hope when things are so bad? Do we act like we have hope when things are so bad? Are, are we the people marked out by that sort of hope? But... but more than anything, he says here, if you live as Jesus, with Jesus as Lord and Master, you're going to be brought to trial. And many of these Christians would stand trial for Jesus. And he says, when you stand trial, you are so closely knit to Jesus that you suffer like Jesus. When you stand trial, you give an answer. You fight like Jesus did. When Jesus stood before Pilate, what did he talk about? He didn't talk about how unjust the court system in Rome was. He, he didn't talk about how he was being mistreated by the religious leaders. No, he talked about the fact that he had power. He had authority in another kingdom, and it didn't matter what that kingdom did to him. 
Didn't matter what the kingdoms of this world thought. He had hope in his own kingdom that would come, rule and reign. And that's what you do. As you look out at the world and things are chaotic and things seem to be falling apart and, and we just want to be frustrated and we just want to be anxious and we just want to be mad at somebody, he says, no, relax. Relax. Your hope is in another kingdom. And when people look in your life, you should be ready to talk about that kingdom. When you suffer like Jesus. Notice the hope you are defending. Look at the verse a little more carefully. He says, notice what you are defending who ask you for the a reason for the hope that is in you. Notice he doesn't say the faith. He doesn't say give a reason for Christianity. No, he talks about the hope that is inside of you. And we've talked about that all the way through 1 Peter, that Jesus, the King, has come with power. He's forgiven us of our sins. He's been raised from the dead. He will rule and reign forever, and He's promised us that kingdom. And that hope, through the seed of the gospel, begins to live within us. And so as we suffer, as we agonize in this world, we're able to have hope. And the reason we have hope is because it's Jesus that lives within us. There's a kingdom that is inside of us. And we suffer for that kingdom. Throughout this whole section, he's talked about suffering for righteousness, suffering for doing good, suffering for doing what's right. And you only do that through aligning yourself with Jesus. You suffer for the right reasons when you are part of the right kingdom. You suffer for good when it's the goodness of Jesus that you're following. You suffer for the will of God. And that's why we've got to be careful when we talk about suffering. Suffering is not being personally offended. It's not. You're not suffering for the kingdom when someone disagrees with your political preferences. You're not. That's not the suffering he's talking about. When you're just angry. Because unbelief... By the way, unbelievers act like unbelievers. Being scandalized by that that's not suffering. The Bible tells us for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when you see that fleshed out and you have to... That's not suffering. Being disliked or disagreed with. Be, being outraged and frustrated that there's an unbelieving world that acts like an unbelieving world. No, let's be very clear about the sort of suffering the New Testament talks about. It is that you are so closely aligned to Jesus that you suffer like Jesus for Jesus. Do you get that? You are so closely aligned to Jesus that you suffer for Jesus like Jesus. It's not abstract. It's not for being a jerk. If you're a jerk, you deserve for folks to not like you. But, but if you are aligned to Jesus who's not a jerk and you are living out the kingdom the way Jesus would, the world around you is going to lash back and they're going to be frustrated with you. But it's for aligning yourself with Jesus. And the hope within you is that in Jesus you've already been crucified. You don't have to walk around with guilt and condemnation. The, the world is going to make you feel guilty and they're going to try to condemn you for your hope in the kingdom. But you've already been forgiven. You've already been raised from the dead. The worst they could do to you is kill you, but you've already been raised from the dead. That's the hope you have. And you live that out in the world. You've already been accepted. You've already won. 
Jesus is raised from the dead. He's at the right hand of God. You are free to serve others. And that is the hope within you. And so when you suffer, you can have meekness. The Christian hope is this. We are to fight as if the worst thing that could possibly happen to us has already happened to us. We've already been mocked. We've already been reviled. We've already been crucified. So fight. You don't have anything to lose. We are to fight in this world as if our best life is still yet to come. So we're free to be merciful. What do we have to lose now? And that's why notice verse 15. This, look, these, these two words in verse 15 are so important. If all of this is true, notice verse 14. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's so important as we think about our life before the world. Are you someone known when you talk to your enemies, those who disagree with you, that you're gentle? That you have respect? And this comes from reverence from Jesus and it leads to self-control in our life. And notice, verse 16, having a good conscience. We live before God and we are careful with our words. We're careful with our tone. We're careful with our disposition. And so we have a good conscience. How many times have you walked away from a Facebook argument and felt guilty about what you said? Oh my goodness, I need to send them a private message. I didn't mean that in the comment. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. You know what that is? You probably weren't gentle and respectful. It probably wasn't a mark of the kingdom in your life. And he says here, if you have the kingdom, you're gentle and you respect others and so you have a good conscience because you're living before God. And when you are slandered, Notice, those who revile you, they see your good behavior in Christ. And notice this, it's not that we don't fight. We fight with gentleness and respect. We have a clear conscience. We don't slander. We don't revile. And we put them to shame. So if you're thinking, what do I get out of it? Because that's how we think. Well, if you live out the gospel and you respond to your enemies in a way that reflects the gospel, it puts them to shame. Do you get that? Do you you see how you should fight? Gentleness and respect, that humiliates and mocks and reviles your enemies more than your anger, more than your tone, more than your sarcasm. Here he says, you want to fight? You fight with gentleness and respect. And notice verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil, than for lashing back. And all of this is summed up in the way this is how Jesus fought. You live before the world. You live before the world as if you are in the presence of God and you have self-control. And so you're not worried about what you've said, what you've done. You're not worried about your disposition. You have a good conscience because you are controlled by the gospel. Christians should fight. We should be like gentle steamrollers in the world. Do you get that? Steamrollers just wrapped in velvet. Just bowling over the world in kindness. That's how we fight. That gives credibility to the gospel. When you are just so angry and frustrated and outraged, you know what you look like? You look like a loser. I look like a loser. Why? Losers are angry. Losers are frustrated and mad. Losers say things that aren't even true. They exaggerate about their opponents. 
But in the gospel, we're like gentle steamrollers. There is a confident tranquility about the way that we fight. Because here's the deal. The people you fight with, if they don't know Jesus, they're going to spend eternity under the wrath of God. Think about that. Think about that. The people you're so mad at, the people you'd like to say go to hell to, they will if they don't know Jesus. And that's not a joke. Hell is eternal torment under the fire of God's justice and wrath. You really want that? You really want that for someone else created in the image of God? Think about how you fight. Think about how you talk to them. Think about the way you live in the world. Think about that. We should care more about they're going to spend eternity under the wrath of God in hell than what cup they're drinking out of at Starbucks. We should care more about their eternal damnation than anything else. You can disagree with me about whether I vaccinate or don't vaccinate my kids. I want you to know Jesus and spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. I want you to escape the judgment of God, which is far more severe than any judgment I could give you. You know where it starts? It starts by standing before the cross. Think about that classmate constantly gossiping about you. Think about that family member who's shunned you and can't get over it. Think about that coach who didn't give your son enough playing time. Think about that professor who belittles Christianity. Think about that friend who betrayed you and you can't get over the pain. Think about those Facebook friends you have blocked because of their political post. Think about that drunk college student last night just dumps whiskey and Coke all over me. You get in my car today, you may, you may not make it home without a DUI. And I was angry. I was furious. Those emotional, gut-level responses where you just want to fight. And then you stand before the cross. Stand before the cross and realize in all of those situations, that's who you were to Jesus. You were an enemy of God. That's who you were by nature. You woke up in labor and delivery screaming, I want it my way! Feed me now! This is all about me. And you've lived that way, acting like you're king your whole life. You know what? You've been raging against Jesus. The same way we rage, except infinitely worse. You've been raging against Jesus. And you know what Jesus does? He doesn't stand before you and nitpick you. He doesn't stand before you and rage. He doesn't stand before you and humiliate you and mock you because you're the one that did that to him by trying to live your own life like your king. You know what he does? He stands before you, arms open wide, nailed to a bloody cross. A fake, false king, king of the world. Yeah, right. Enduring the blowtorch of God's wrath for his enemies that you look at every morning and brush their teeth. Oh, what are you scared of? What are you scared of? I'll tell you what you should be more scared of. A watching world watching you rage and getting a false gospel. That's what you should be more scared of. Oh, stand before the cross 
Stand before the cross and find the freedom to bless those who curse you. Let's pray.